Welcome to BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. This week's episode concerns the Sahel, the semi-arid region south of the Sahara, and the conflicts ongoing there, in particular in Mali. I'll pass over now to Philip Cullif, who is speaking to Yvonne Guichaud. So we're recording on the 11th of November, and today I'm delighted to be joined by a former colleague of mine from the University of Kent, Yvonne Guichaud who is Senior Lecturer in Conflict Analysis at the Brussels Schools of International Studies, which is part of the University of Kent, but um, at the Brussels campus. So my old um, my old university, University of Kent, has two campuses. I was based at the, Bru- at the Canterbury campus, and my colleague Yvonne is based at the Brussels campus. And today we've got Yvonne on to uh, talk about a topic which I've been uh, meaning to discuss for a long time, which is the course of the War on Terror and the French military intervention in Francophone Africa, Northwest Africa, particularly in Mali, but it's embroiled in a whole complex of conflicts in the region, which um, we'll talk about with Yvonne um, shortly. But it's been um, it's a conflict that's uh, been overlooked, um, especially in the Anglophone press. Occasionally, it breaks through to the surface with pieces in the New York Times and the Guardian and the Financial Times, but even in those places, generally, it's not received the kind of attention that um, the sheer kind of scale and complexity of the conflict warrants, perhaps. So for that reason, I'm delighted to be joined by Yvonne um, to talk about this topic. Um, And Yvonne also has a number of academic articles out on this, which uh, interested listeners can uh, follow up. You can find them in the show notes. One is a piece on the French intervention in Mali, published in International Affairs, and the other one concerns norms and jihadi violence, and that's published in International Interactions. And like I say, you can find the links on um, for those pieces in the show notes. So welcome to the show, Yvonne. Thank you very much for having me. I'm glad to be here. So before we get into the topic, could you tell us a little bit about how you came to study the Sahel? What interested you about this region originally? Well, I started working on the Sahel in 2007, and my first um, entry point into the uh, political dynamics in the Sahel was the um, rebellion that was happening there in 2007. Now, ironically, I was not meant to work on this particular Tuareg rebellion that started in 2007. I was willing to work on a previous rebellion that happened in the 90s. And my original intention was actually to talk to veterans of this rebellion and to study the post-conflict situation and whether the grievances of these combatants had been addressed or not. Uh, But um, the most perhaps um, important reason for this was that just before that, I was a postdoctoral student at the University of Kent. I was working on Nigeria and particularly the ethnic militias um, operating in Nigeria. And I found it really, really tough to work in this context. And I had conversations with um, a scholar I really uh, 
Sorry, like. when you when you say tough, do you mean tough to do field work, or do you mean just the kind of the um, background and the analytical kind of issues? Well, it was analytically challenging, uh, but it was uh, particularly challenging um, as far as data collection and fieldwork yeah. was con were concerned. Yeah. Um, the whole environment um, was uh, causing quite a lot of uh, psychological distress, I have to be honest. Yeah. Uh, I felt very isolated, very vulnerable, uh, working with these um, ethnic militias, like I was meeting them on a regular basis um, and everything that was happening inside the group, outside the group, in the broader political environment uh, were making me feel pretty bad, in fact. And so I had conversations, I remember, with Statis Kalivas, who is a wonderful scholar of uh, conflict, who told me at the time, look, what's the point of uh, studying an on going conflict and there's in fact plenty you can achieve by looking at a past conflict and it may sound silly retrospectively but I it didn't occur to me that it was actually interesting to also study past conflicts and so my original point was to study a conflict that was over or, the, or that was about to end and so that I could carry out some empirical investigation in a sort of more quiet uh, environments. The thing is that when I started uh, getting interested in the Sahel, um, a new rebellion started uh, and it was too late. I had uh, planned field works and I started working on another ongoing conflict that was originally um, rebellion happening in the north of Niger. Um, whose belligerents were a small rebel group challenging the state. Uh, but since then, the uh, conflict has grown. Uh, uh, it was, in fact, um, even bigger in Mali and had a lot of um, sim similarities with what happening, uh, was happening in Mali. And uh, since I gradually developed this sort of uh, Sahel specialization, um, I also... Um, got in touch with um, uh, think tanks, including the International Crisis Group, uh, who hired me in 2012 to work on a uh, report that they were about to release about the situation that was happening in Mali. And that is, in fact, the reason why I eventually never stopped working on the Sahel, because these experience with the International Crisis Group opened a lot of doors to me and um, made me realize like how complicated the situation was. And, and, and in fact, I, I still feel frustrated today after these many years working on this conflict, um, not to understand um, most of the ramifications of this conflict. Yeah. So um, I'm still hooked. Uh, I'm still riveted to what is going on there uh, and still willing to understand further. So my familiarity with the conflict in the region mainly stems from uh, UN peacekeeping, which is my area of academic expertise. And I've had a paper that I've been working on for a while, some years back now, looking at um, contributions to the UN peacekeeping mission in Mali. So that is really, um, you know, the extent of my kind of uh, limited knowledge of the conflict in the region. But I have to say, so looking from the outside, it seems almost impossibly complex. 
you know, on the one hand, you have these kinds of super state actors such as the African Union, the European Union, the UN. You've got regional actors, West African organizations. You've got sub-state actors such as drug cartels, people traffickers, um, separatist insurgents, uh, Russian mercenaries, jihadis. And then all of this is spread out across um, an enormous kind of region geographically, which is tremendously poor and backwards, post-colonial developing states. Um, so given that picture, uh, and I realize this is a challenging question, but one nonetheless, um, you know, I'm curious to curious to hear your response. Is it possible to summarize the conflict for our listeners, given all that complexity? Yes, I, I can try at least. Um, I'm not sure if this is uh, going to be um, intelligible, but I think the best way to answer this question is, in fact, to look at um, things in a chronological manner. Uh, and if you consider the first episode of violence happening in the Sahel, and I'm talking of Mali and Niger uh, specifically, you could frame these episodes, these incidents in a sort of center periphery kind of approach. You could argue at the time that um, the states of Niger, the states uh, of uh, Mali, were created um, after independence as fairly artificial constructs. And these situations would make some sections of the population not very happy, and particularly the nomadic populations living in the north. So classic state periphery thing in post-colonial Africa. The people that are marginalized, that live on the fringes and don't get access to um, the center of uh, authority are unhappy, they take up arms, they challenge the state. Um, in, the, um, in some cases, they um, opt for a separatist agenda. In others, um, they are they revise their ambitions and go for decentralization or federalism. federalism. But I mean, that's one way to frame the origins of the conflict. And in 2012, when a rebellion started in Mali, that's really much how you could read what was going on. But that didn't last for very long because soon after the rebellion started, which was led by separatist movements based in the north of the country, there was a coup happening in the south. And that made observers aware that in fact, the problems were not just located uh, in the periphery of Mali, but were also very much located in the center, in the capital. So what was originally seen as a center periphery conflict became very much uh, governance crisis. And so people started yeah. looking into the past governance uh, of this political entity that is Mali to figure out the reasons for a sort of general political decay. And so there's been a shift here uh, that happened soon after the start of the rebellion in 2012. And because also the uh, conflict had regional ramification, new regional actors started getting interested in what was going on. Uh, first of them was um, 
the ECOWAS, so the regional bloc, and they tried to offer solutions to what was going on that they didn't manage. And one more thing made the picture even more complicated, uh, which is the fact that the north of Mali was also a safe haven for jihadist cells. And jihadist cells that were originally coming from uh, Algeria, that were a byproduct of the civil war that was raging in Algeria in the 90s, uh, that were kicked out of uh, Algeria uh, and that started developing um, the promotion of um, the jihads in uh, the central Sahel and in Mali in particular. And they did so in a very, very clever way. They uh, preached, they established uh, um, marital connections uh, between their members and uh, some local communities. Yeah. They also kidnapped Westerners, uh, tourists, uh, which they uh, eventually released against uh, quite a lot of money. And so that made them rich. Uh, and um, when the state collapsed in 2012, after the kickoff of the rebellion, they were there just behind the rebels and ready also to take their share of the pie. Yeah. And um, this is also what attracted the attention of Western powers, of course, and France yeah. in particular, because they were portraying the Sahel as a new front of the war against terror. So you have layers of actors yeah. that eventually join uh, the conflict uh, for, I mean, following their respective logics, right? But originally, mm. I think uh, that the conflict needs to be characterized first and foremost as um, a crisis of the post-colonial state. So when, um, so you've mentioned the kind of the origins of the, the kind of the origins of the conflict in Mali with the spillover from Libya and the civil war there. Um, and you, I suppose... Uh, You've kind of talked about the, you know, you, and we're going to talk about all of these elements in a bit more detail. But is there, how would you, how would you summarize then? I suppose the crisis of the post-colonial state in Africa um, is it just the kind of uh, the center-periphery dynamic, or is are there other significant dynamics that are that pertain to the question of violence? And I suppose especially interesting uh, for for us uh, with in regard to francophone Africa? Well, the, the, the thing is that Mali inherited a very, very vast territory at independence uh, from the French. And in the first years of uh, the independence, they established a socialist regime whose uh, power was very much concentrated in the South and whose agenda was really to destroy the old traditional hierarchies uh, prevailing in the northern part of the countries and also in the rural parts of the countries. Like, uh, uh, and and, and this, this didn't work very well because the regime didn't have the capacity to meet its promise to bring about socialism and uh, equality among the citizens. 
Um, also, the regime was um, overthrown by um, a military uh, power. So for many years, Mali was a dictatorship. And it was always a challenge for the successive regimes to control the North. And they used uh, repressions uh, against um, any sort of uh, resistance to the state presence uh, in the North. Um, but they were never able to deploy and broadcast their administration uh, in the most remote parts of the uh, countries. So what they did in the 90s and uh, in the following years was to adopt a sort of second best option. Instead of deploying the administration, they would use forces from the North loyal to the government, but for reasons that had to do with stories among northerners, um, hierarchies that some people wanted to subvert. So uh, the classic strategy for the central authorities was to use some sort of divide and rule um, tactics, logics, to still stay on top, uh, remind people living in the north that this territory was part of Mali and was under the control of uh, the people in the capital. So it was never, in fact, the ambition of the state to have full control uh, in these last years preceding the uh, rebellion of 2012. Uh, the major ambition was to remain powerful enough to make sure that no force could eventually provoke a massive secession, right? Mm -hmm. And this is where the um, shock of um, the intervention of Libya plays an important role in the sense that the weapons that the collapse of Qaddafi's regime made available for the actors uh, of um, Northern Mali uh, represented a sort of technological shock that made the project of secessionism and separatism viable and in fact credible. Yeah. And that was the end of the story for um, Bamako's power. Like they didn't have the capacity anymore to stay on top and to uh, keep on check these armed actors that um, had were carrying basically um, separatist agenda. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I, yeah, I, so, and then I mentioned the UN peacekeeping mission in Mali, but obviously the other aspect of it that I was familiar with um, was the NATO intervention in Libya and the knock-on consequences of that. Um, so, and that is, as you say, the kind of, um, an important kind of background factor to all of this. Um, I wanted to talk a bit more about jihadism. So you mentioned the fact that the kind of jihadis were waiting in the wings with um and particularly that they were enriched by virtue of kidnapping tourists. Um, and certainly the way in which it's generally portrayed, has been portrayed in the media, is as a, um, you know, is as kind of part of the war on terror to a greater or lesser degree. And I'm curious, I suppose, as to how much of an independent role jihadism plays, whether or not it is, because I've heard, you know, from people involved in UN peacekeeping, they've I've heard kind of uh, stories, how accurate they are, I don't know. But, you know, I've heard about how 
um, the people that UN peacekeepers will deal with in the afternoon um, as kind of ordinary interlocutors or civilians will kind of don jihadi garb overnight and then attack the UN compound or attack UN personnel. And then the next day they might be kind of um, involved in smuggling or they might be kind of or don the kind of uniform of the um, of the uh, separatists. And so that there is no there is the sense of it being that there isn't kind of um, uh, sharp ideological polarization. Um, so I'm curious to know kind of what you make of the, you know, how important jihadism is ideologically or whether it's or whether it's more is something which is kind of, um, you know, like an ideological trimming for, um, you know, religious kind of inspired separatism or whether it's, it's whether it's more just kind of a, a way to kind of um, cohere or motivate these um, people smuggling and, uh, you know, the kind of the criminal networks that kind of flourish in the region. So how do you read the the phenomenon of jihadism in this context? Well, I firmly reject this uh, theory that uh, some people use, uh, which conflates the jihadists and the smugglers. Uh, there's plenty of smuggling happening across the Sahara. The biggest actors are not the jihadists. They are in state capitals. <laughs> so we have to be very, very clear about this. And it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a, and we have to, I think, debunk very firmly this idea that the jihadists don't have a political agenda. Like they yeah. are a serious political force. When they gain control of territories, they enforce the Sharia law. Um, and you have a variety of ways of governing among them uh, because the local commanders also have a lot of uh, discretion uh, also because you have like two different kinds of jihadist groups uh, the um, al-qaeda affiliated and the uh, islamic state affiliated um, uh, jihadist groups uh, who follow different doctrines but if you take the case of the al-qaeda affiliated groups and particularly those operating in central mali right now the uh, governance that they impose on populations is not just a series of do's and don'ts. Uh, it's also deep governance of um, the management of resources and including pastoral resources, access to uh, pastoral land, um, competition between farmers and pastoralists. They invoke all sorts of fairly sophisticated rules to adjudicate disputes, to distribute uh, access, to uh, regulate taxation. And that's serious governance, um, which is an area where the state has been failing uh, years after years uh, in uh, the pre-war uh, situation. So we, we need to take this political agenda seriously because otherwise, we somehow just suggest that the state should be back uh, and that population will be happy. But in fact, no, the kind of governance that jihadists propose is based on coercion and they are like super strict um, in their use of uh, violence. But they also meet certain demands uh, among the uh, population and, and they carry a truly revolutionary agenda um, when it comes to 
um, subverting all forms of, um, of power, pre-war power. Um, they renegotiate the role of uh, old local elites. Um, and if you look specifically at the taxation system that they put in place, the called the Zakat, uh, it has a truly uh, redistributive dimension. The, the Zakat theoretically is meant to serve the poor, and they do this. They, they redistribute money to the poor, <laughs> from the rich to the poor. And, and, and so... Uh, this should not be overlooked. This is not happening in all the areas that they control, but uh, this is an, an important uh, dimension to uh, take on board. And the fact that you invoke an affiliation with Al-Qaeda or an affiliation with the Islamic State means that you have um, a spectrum of action that is delineated by these affiliations. There are things you can do, things you cannot do, and um, the um, um, the leaders of Al Qaeda in the Middle East or the Islamic State in the Middle East also have some ways to uh, control, suggest uh, certain courses of uh, action. Of course, there's plenty of autonomy also for the actors on the ground, and they can also use the Islamic jurisprudence that prevails in the Central Sahel. So they use a, a very complex and sophisticated set of norms to, um, to, 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 to govern. And, and so they are not just a sort of um, um, justification for um, criminal activities. I right. completely reject this view that religion is just the veneer you place so that you can um, legitimize uh, criminal actions. So when you talk about the smugglers and the central capitals, like, um, or are this, I mean, is, are these, uh, you know, is this kind of uh, state bureaucrats who are paid to look the other way? Or is it that they are actually in charge of these organizations themselves? Well, the thing is that smuggling is happening across the continent. And Mali is just one segment yeah. of... Um, much larger transnational uh, criminal network. So the smugglers are in charge in Mali uh, or in Niger are in charge of one small segment of the smuggling route. And they take a cargo at a certain point and their role is to bring this cargo to another uh, destination, like a few thousand kilometers away from the uh, original uh, point. And so they need to uh, find their way <laughs> um, uh, and make sure that um, the cargo is, is protected uh, and so that they can make a profit. And for that purpose, they can work with anyone who can secure the convoy. So if people in the capital are uh, the powerful guys that can turn a blind eye or even help with uh, protecting the uh, convoy, then they would go for people in the capital. If the convoy has to cross areas that are under the control of the jihadist, well, they might pay a tax to the jihadist uh, for the protection of the convoy, but that does not make the jihadist smugglers themselves. Like They might make a profit out of smuggling activities, but that's not their core business, right? And if 
part of the trip uh, involves crossing areas under the control of separatist movements, then they will pay uh, the separatist movements. So that's an entirely uh, separate logic that still contributes to the political dynamic, to the conflict, to uh, arms smuggling as well. Uh, but uh, it's it's the logic of people who want to make money out of uh, smuggling activities. So if you go and or look at the actors with a sort of explicit political agenda, you have three types of actors, the separatists, the pro-government actors, and the jihadists. And these three options means that people on the ground can make all sorts of alliances, right? And in the middle of them, you have the smugglers, which are driven by um, economic interests and uh, the perspective of uh, realizing profits, and who also need to make some compromises with these political actors because they control a territory that matters uh, to them. So uh, maybe it's a simplified way of representing things, but I think it's... This simplification uh, can explain a lot. Yeah. And what are they, what is the most lucrative? I mean, what are the things that are smuggled the most? What is the most lucrative items to smuggle in this part of Africa, particularly? Oh, uh, there's cocaine that comes from uh, Latin America. There's uh, and, that, so that, and that presumably that comes into the ports. On that in, comes into the ports, that comes by air. Uh, right. the, 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 the routes keep changing, uh, but yeah, the coastal areas are actually um, like very uh, important. Um, um, Togo, uh, Guinea-Bissau, countries like this, like uh, are entry points for um, drug that might come from uh, Latin America. Uh, there's plenty also coming from Morocco, uh, so cannabis. Uh, and that, that follows a sort of north-south route, then uh, west-east uh, route, uh, and, and weapons, of course. Uh, yeah. And weapons and um, drugs like work hand in hand because um, it's not necessarily money uh, that is used or as a currency, but that could be, that could be weapons. Uh, and also in, in terms of... Um, Technology of transportation, um, the, the 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 most powerful like Hilux Toyotas uh, are used for uh, weapons and drug, um, and then you have alternative uh, modes of uh, transportation for forms of smuggling that are perhaps less serious, but through trucks. And, and so there's this is there's a distinction that people make on the ground between like the slow forms of smuggling uh, and the very fast ones uh, using the super powerful like V8 uh, Toyota Hilux. Yeah. So um, if we kind of move on, I guess, to the um, to this question of the French forever war um, or the kind of the theater of uh, the forever war that the French have been overseeing in this region, I wanted just to talk about it um, from the French side, I guess, uh, as we've touched upon the kind of uh, dynamics internal to Mali itself or internal to the region. So if we, the so-called, so the American kind of forever war is usually dated to 2001, 
with the um, invasion of Afghanistan in response to the terror attacks there and then ends um, in 2021 with the US withdrawal from Afghanistan. And since then, obviously, um, the war on terror itself has become overshadowed by the invasion of Ukraine. But it's an on, it's still an ongoing conflict, not least in in the region itself. So the French involvement in Mali um, begins like with the uh, inter military intervention in 2014, and it's ended officially, uh, or Operation Barkhan has ended, uh, President Macron has ended it uh, just on the 9th of November. It was formally drawn to an end. Um, and so you have kind of for perhaps half roughly or less than half the length of the American conflict in Afghanistan, you've had this um, parallel kind of theater running in Mali. And like you say, the origins can be traced back to um the French uh, and British military intervention, NATO military intervention against Gaddafi um, in Libya in 2010. So given all this, I wondered if you could um, uh, kind of, if there are any significant differences or similarities between the French and American forever wars. We've, I mean, I've spoken a bit about the kind of timelines involved, but I wonder in terms of the dynamics of the insurgency um, the dynamics of kind of the scope of the intervention by Western powers, uh, the modalities of the intervention, any kind of important differences or similarities you think between the two kind of wings of the forever war that are worth drawing our listeners' attention to? Yeah, it's interesting because I, uh, among the um, tribes uh, in political science, I, I feel close bonds to um, the uh, comparative politics tribes as opposed to the international relation. Uh, tribe, and uh, I've always been reluctant to sort of draw draw comparison um, between oh. such a distance uh, theaters of uh, operations. But after the fall of Kabul, uh, I actually received a lot of media solicitation precisely to draw this parallel, which forced me to think more carefully about. Uh, the similarities between the the two interventions, and in fact, there are there are some. Uh, uh, even though the French, when they intervened uh, in uh, two thousand and thirteen, were told, "Look, you risk a fate similar to the Americans in Afghanistan." Even though the situation was not as bad as. Um, it eventually uh, became in Afghanistan, but there were already a lot of criticism raised against the American intervention in uh, Afghanistan. And that's the kind of future that was predict predicted by a lot of observers uh, uh, to the French when they intervened in 2013. And I remember very, very well the French response consisting of saying like, look, we have learned from the mistakes of the uh, Americans oh. in uh, Afghanistan and we know better, uh, and we know better in several ways. First, we are operating in our former colonies and our army has a memory of how to handle warfare and counterinsurgency in the desert. And that's a very, very interesting aspect of the whole story, huh? which has been studied by uh, uh, historians uh, and uh, political scientists in, in, in France, like to look into the institutional memory of the French army and how um, colonial um, routines, habits have been revived uh, 
yeah. uh, in this intervention uh, that started in 2013. So that was the first argument that the French were putting forward. We know the actors, we know the terrain, uh, and we have plenty of um, experience that we can mobilize again. Uh, and then the other thing was working perhaps more closely um, with the um, local leaders uh, and the uh, Sahelian states, as opposed to try to um, go for um, a muscular uh, type of uh, state building uh, project. So these were, I think, the two arguments that were put forward. We know how to handle things militarily, and we are adopting a sort of light touch. We're not here for state building from the outside. Uh, we want to work in close coordination with uh, local actors and particularly those who have been elected in the capitals. But these two assets that the French uh, thought they had uh, that were giving them uh, an advantage uh, compared to the US in, in Afghanistan had proved completely ineffective with time. Um, the, the, the pretension to know the actors and know how to behave uh, militarily um, fell apart or was not sufficient because I, you could argue that the French still uh, militarily did a fairly effective job in the sense that they uh, killed a lot of jihadist leaders, uh, but they also did some mistakes. For example, they tried to um, make alliances with local armed actors, non-state actors, made them auxiliaries in their fight against the terrorist groups, and that proved uh, absolutely damaging for the local so social fabric because these groups that had been co-opted by the French um, uh, perpetrated all sorts of atrocities against civilians. Yeah. So, and, and that's another uh, thing that was very common during um, colonial conquest, right? Using um, proxies for counterinsurgency. They did yeah. this in 2018 at the border between Mali and Niger, and that was a nightmare uh, for the uh, populations. And that was eventually unplugged uh, as a strategy. Uh, and then the other thing uh, consisting of working with elected leaders, elected presidents in Niger, in Mali, in uh, Burkina Faso didn't work that well. In the case of Mali, for example, so uh, the French worked closely with the elected president Ibrahim Boubacar Keita. Um, who uh, had personal connections with Francois Hollande because they were both members of the uh, Socialist International, so this club of uh, socialist leaders. Uh, and Ibrahim Boubacar Keita had credentials as a figure of the opposition. He was eventually elected after the French uh, intervention. He signed a peace agreement with the separatist forces. Um, he welcomed the uh, peacekeeping missions, the, the um, uh, uh, MINUSMA. Uh, so it started fairly well, but it unraveled very, very, very quickly because um, he uh, was also a very corrupt leader, perhaps not himself, but his son, who was in charge of all sorts of um, um, military contracts, shady uh, operations. Mm -hmm. um, and so the uh, rule of Ibrahim Boubacar Keita uh, ended up very, very uh, contested by the streets. 
and uh, also um, politically um, and uh, on the security front, the sort of um, uh, tactics used by the French uh, consisting of like killing jihadist leaders were not uh, stopping the jihadist expansion. So uh, on the security front, on the political front, the French intervention uh, proved uh, to be uh, a failure. And even though the, the end was not as spectacular as the fall of Kabul, it's not a very glorious end either because the French were still arguably kicked out by the Malians after a coup um, uh, overthrew Ibrahim Boubacar Keita and after uh, the president was replaced by a junta. So turning a bit to um, French uh, French politics, um, there was certainly, I mean, you know, the with the fall of Kabul and the inevitable kind of comparisons to um, the fall of Saigon, and how much of a humiliation and setback it was for um, Joe Biden personally and for his administration, and that it played into um, you know domestic politics at least until the Russian invasion of Ukraine kind of um, uh, you know changed I suppose the narrative. So I'm curious as to what the uh, mood I suppose is like in France politically. Is it experienced as another kind of um, as another? Uh, defeat for French counterinsurgency, um, kind of a long chapter of France's kind of imperial expeditions in Africa that is um, uh, that is uh, kind of again like um, has again been defeated or is it seen in a different way? Is it factoring in French internal politics at all or is it something which has been kept separate from kind of party political uh, competition or you know is there another dimension to the way in which it's being received in France at the moment? Well, before Macron's re-election, uh, I was very curious to see the importance of the French uh, military operations uh, uh, abroad um, in the um, presidential campaign. And well, since I spent hours every day looking at what, are going, what is going on uh, in the Sahel, I'm super biased. <laughs> and I was thinking that this would have a major impact on the uh, presidential campaign. Um, eventually, I really don't think it doesn't matter much um, what is going on uh, uh, in Africa for French troops deployed in Africa uh, for the um, great majority of the French uh, opinion. It, I think the main risk was to have like more French soldiers killed because the Sahel makes the news in France when some French soldiers are killed. Rest of the time, nobody ever talks about the, what is going on in the Sahel. And um, you had several up episodes that could have harmed uh, Macron, um, the death of um, um, French soldiers in a helicopter accident. I forgot exactly when that happened, but uh, this created a sort of shockwave in the fr French opinion, but that didn't very um, much last for long. Um, so this is really the kind of episodes that could have uh, an impact in um, among the French opinion. Um, otherwise, the sort of political humiliation, well, yeah, that's not making French foreign policy looking very, very good um, in the eyes of the 
uh, French people, but I think the the negative impact on on Macron is is still fairly limited. Uh, what I think uh, is is important to um, keep in mind, though, is that the Sahel was really also uh, used by Macron um, as a way to impose himself and impose France as the main military leader uh, in Europe, in the EU. Yeah. And so in the very last months of the French intervention, uh, the French had tried very hard to bring on board European partners. Uh, and the French had asked them, in fact, to send special forces to work uh, with the French in the Sahel. But this has been dismantled eventually um, because of um, the political development in Mali. But this has served as a sort of laboratory for uh, French military leadership in Europe. Uh, and this, according to the French military, is uh, considered a success. Uh, France is now, and especially after Brexit, uh, the, the main uh, military protector of uh, Europe, right, of the uh, European Union. Hi, listener, this is the end of the free episode. If you've enjoyed this, make sure to review the podcast and give us five stars. Subscribers to BungaCast have access to the second part of the interview over at patreon.com slash BungaCast. If you'd like to be one of them, just sign up for $5 a month and you'll get access to this and at least two original episodes a month that are available to subscribers only. These include extended interviews, like this one, in-depth analyses of current events, and our ongoing critical dialogues with subscribers. That's all at patreon.com slash bungacast.